Well, it is good to be amongst you and uh, uh, thank Tony for the invitation to uh, come and share for a while and uh, have the privilege of spending this day with you and tomorrow preaching from your, your pulpit. Uh, uh, it was suggested that I speak three times on eschatology. I don't know whether you know what eschatology is or isn't. Uh, it's one of those words that uh, theologians uh, like to use, uh, which the public by and large doesn't know, and it's just as well. It's just the study of the end, is eschatology. Eschat is the last, and logos is study. So it's just the study of the end times. Now, evangelicals are, as the word implies, gospel people. Because the very word evangelical has been in the middle of it, evange, which is the word gospel. Evangelicals, therefore, are the believers in God's word, God's interpretation of the great events of the death, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The hallmark of evangelicalism is the assurance of salvation. We know that we are citizens of heaven because we are not there on the basis of our good works. We are there on the basis of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go to heaven when I die because I have been in heaven for many, many years already. And so it's not a new thing that I'm going to. It's where I am already and have been since I, I was a young nipper and came to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness and was born again by the Spirit of God. Heaven is a, uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven is where I am. Um, uh, my body is still here on earth, but that will surely pass and I will be able to continue in the resurrected body in the new age with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have assurance of salvation and it's one of the hallmarks of a Christian. It's one of the hallmarks of an evangelical. Uh, a politician came to see me some years ago to try and get me to, to uh, vote for him and if possible to encourage our church to vote for him. Uh, a very nice man. Uh, an unusual politician because he was honest um, that's that unusual um, ha however I assured him I wouldn't uh, be getting the congregation to vote for him because uh, I think it's a misuse uh, of our pulpit uh, to uh, make uh, directions to our congregation when the issue of the gospel is not central in the divisions between uh, the parties um, if he was, a, you know, if the only other party was the Communist Party, I may indeed direct the congregation as to what I think. But the differences between the main political parties of uh, Australia is zero, so it really didn't matter very much. So we we have a wonderful thing in Australia that you don't have here, uh, that you should. Uh, it's a great mistake. Uh, we have compulsory voting. Uh, you get fined if you don't vote. Uh, it's a wonderful thing um, because it means you never think, oh, well, 51% of the people who voted believe X. You know that 51% of Australians believed X. Given a choice, the majority, the real majority, not the majority of the 30% who voted. And our voting is always on Saturday, not on Thursday or whenever weird day of the week you have it that make it impossible for lots of people to get to the polls anyway. And so we actually uh, know what the majority of Australians want. And therefore, the political parties are always heading to the centre. It's impossible to be an extremist and get elected in Australia um, uh, because you've got to get 
the majority, the literal majority of the population. So, therefore, our political parties don't disagree with each other except in their rhetoric. Uh, but when you change parties, you, nothing changes much. So I'm not going to stand up and say you should vote for these fellows as opposed to those fellows because, frankly, nothing hangs on it. Um, my Australian brothers now are gnashing their teeth because they don't agree with me, but that's still the general broad area that is Anyway, so I'm not going to tell people which way to vote when there's no great difference that's involved in it. Um, uh, so we got chatting, he and I, when I'd made my position clear, he'd made his position clear, and uh, he used to be a communist, uh, a youth man, a young man, as an atheist. Uh, he'd moved from communism, uh, uh, and he'd moved from atheism, uh, and he was now representing the conservatives. He'd moved a long way politically from left right across to the right, uh, which is interesting, and he moved out of atheism into theism. I tell you, he's a very interesting politician, he's not your usual man at all. And so uh, I, I said to him, well, you've moved to theism, have you come to the point yet where you can be sure that you're going to heaven? And he paused for a long time. Now, here's a real test of the honesty of a politician. Uh, he said, uh, no, no, he said, I couldn't say that. He said, in fact, I don't think you could ever reach that position. Now. That was a very telling moment, you see, because now you know that he thinks the way to heaven has got to do with moral achievement, not with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's right there. It's a, it's a good question. Pick, I picked it up from, uh, 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 you can give away your faith. What's his name? Paul Little. Paul E. Little was an American evangelist, very good evangelist, wrote three little books, you, How to Give Away Your Faith, Know what you believe, know why you believe. Really good little set of training manuals for evangelicals and evangelists. Um, uh, he was killed in a car accident in his, in his 40s. And so his, his rising star in evangelical kind of circles disappeared. Uh, sadly, because they are very good little books. Um, and his, he said, this is a good question. Have you yet reached the stage where you could be assured that you'll go to heaven? Um, it assumes you're heading the right direction, doesn't it? And at the same time, it raises the issue as to whether you have your faith in Jesus or your faith in yourself. And this politician, he saw the point of the question and he gave the wrong answer. Well, he gave the right answer. It was the truth. And uh, so I was able to spend some time talking to him about the fact that salvation is by faith in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and not by your good works. Um, and uh, we parted friends and I didn't agree to vote for him uh, and he didn't mind he was a very interesting man uh, his daughter uh, has become a Christian a keen Christian and his son-in-law uh, who is also a leading politician in Australia a household name uh, I believe has been led to Christ as well uh, but I don't think he has uh, sadly yet that is the hallmark of an evangelical, assurance of salvation. Very interesting one, really. Um, it, it shows why um, uh, the new perspective, if you know anything about it, which dominated Durham's Anglicanism for some time, is wrong, because it undermines assurance of salvation. Uh, another hallmark of evangelicals is evangelism. Uh, we are the people who preach the gospel. The people who believe the gospel preach the gospel because if you know the gospel, you know there's got to be got, it's got to be preached. Uh, 
Is it a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? You cannot be like Jesus and be unconcerned about the, the salvation of sinners. That's not possible. How can you be like Jesus? How can you follow Jesus and not care about the lost? When the whole reason Jesus came into the world was to save the lost. So if I'm one of the saved lost, I will always be concerned about the lost. Indeed, another little litmus test, assurance of salvation is one litmus test, another little litmus test is do you care about the lost? Because if you don't care about the lost, that's prima facie evidence that you're one of the lost. Because once you've been saved, you're immediately concerned about other people being saved as well. Uh, that is the nature of the salvation we have. So another way of seeing it, you see, is you look at the outcome of Christianity in the New Testament, and from the outcome, you see its, its, its centri what's central to it. That is, I, I, I like watching sport. Uh, I used to like playing it. I would still love to play it, but that is something I have resigned from and retired from. Um, that, you know, the, the body just does not now do what it used to. Uh, some years ago, I was at a church picnic and we had a game of cricket, and uh, a young man uh, was very serious in his cricket, um, and I felt in slips. I thought that would be a safe place to be because. You don't have to run too far anymore, and so, you know, you can stand and chat to people and don't have to run. Anyway, he bowled a beautiful outswinger, caught the edge of the bat just exactly, as man drove an off-drive to an outswinger, and he just clipped the edge of the bat, and the ball flew straight towards me, and I put my hand right where it was, but by the time I got my hand there, I heard it hit the fence. <laughs> <coughs> the bowler was not amused <laughs> and I spent the rest of the afternoon right down on long leg down by the fence uh, out of the way as much as possible. The body reaches a stage where it just can't do what it still imagines it can so now I just watch it but of course after a certain time you can't see it anymore the old eyes don't function that clearly so now when I'm out watching the cricket what I've got to do is watch where the follow-through is, because where the follow-through is, presumably the ball will be. And so I, I don't see the ball, I just see where the follow-through is, and then I go looking in that direction or this direction. And just before it hits the fence, I can see where the man is running and diving at it, as they do these days. In fact, they don't have the fence anymore. They have a rope because they're so sick of silly cricketers uh, smashing themselves against the fence. I would take away the rope and get them to learn how to stop. <laughs> They'd learn fairly quickly and those that didn't learn wouldn't be playing anymore. Um, anyway, so the follow through tells you what the stroke was about. Uh, it's the same with golf, isn't it? If you're a golfer rather than a cricketer, um, the slice, the hook, it's all, it's all in the follow through. Uh, I've never been able to achieve that. I took my brother, my brother used to play with me and we'd go around a little course. I found a terrific course in which to beat him. I was in a little nine hell course, just went around once down at Botany for those locals. It's a terrific course. Of course, Peter had a very vicious hook and I had a very vicious slice. So we met each other at the tee and on the green. But between, it was, we were going down different fairways against the flow each time. It was, our father always went the shortest possible distance between the, he never hooked or sliced, he just taught his sons how to go off line. 
I never beat my father, even in his 80s I still couldn't beat him because he took the shortest possible route, whereas I explored every fairway several times. <laughs> but botany was really good because you just go around in a clockwise fashion, which meant that the hook was always out of bounds, out on the street. And so I always could beat my brother, and he never understood how I could beat him, but it was simple because the slice put me into another fairway, whereas the hook put him out of bounds. Uh, and you do that in nine holes, you're bound to win, aren't you? So you need to. But the follow-through is the... What's the follow-through of Christianity? The book of Acts gives us the follow-through. As a result of the Lord Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, sending out the apostles, they founded schools and hospitals. They appointed bishops, priests and deacons. They invented a whole religious haberdashery and iconography. They invented candles and religious candles. There's a cupboard full of religious candles in there, for example. They, they created whole new music groups and created political unrest in the, uh, in the Roman Empire. Not. None of those things are true, are they? They didn't do any of those things. So if you think that's what Christianity is about, you actually haven't understood what the apostles in the Lord Jesus was about. And that's the follow-through of people in later centuries, but not the follow-through of the original. What they went about doing was preaching Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and seeing people become Christians. That's what it was about. Evangelism is a hallmark of genuine Christianity. It's the follow-through of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so when you see a church doing everything else but evangelism, you know they haven't got the gospel themselves. And when you see a church really committed to evangelism, you know they've got the gospel. <laughs> and that's likewise with, with a man too. <laughs> when you see a man who's concerned about the salvation of others, you know he's got the gospel on his heart. And when you see a man who's concerned with everything else under the sun, like how to beat his brother at golf by putting on the right golf course, you think, well, has he really got the gospel on his heart? Uh, unless you've got an older brother, then you'd know to do, how to do it too. That is, the New Testament gospel is really a, a gospel-producing gospel, a gospel-preaching gospel. But what is the heart of the New Testament gospel? When you look through the book of Acts to see what it is they sometimes preached, what it is they often preached, what it is they never preached, the one subject they always preach is the resurrection. That is the one subject that is every time mentioned. Now, you can't measure, mention the resurrection without mentioning death, because that's what resurrection is coming back, and you can't, you can't mention resurrection without mentioning Jesus. So there are other things that are mentioned every time. But the atoning work of Jesus, that he has died and his blood is shed to pay for the sins of people and turn aside the wrath of God, that is not what they preached in the book of Acts. It's not different to what they preached. It's, Peter, it's Paul's understanding of what he was preaching according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But Luke never records that that's what they said. But he always records the resurrection. And so it's really important for us to understand this word, resurrection, and to teach it faithfully, because this is what they did. Resurrection is the follow-through from the resurrection of Jesus. Let me show it to you just to go over a page in Acts 4. We're going to get to Acts 2, do not panic, but Acts 4.
As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple of the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Did you see how I misread that passage? Because most people don't see it when I do misread it like that. Uh, especially in our Bibles these days where, you know, oh, he's reading the first edition or the American edition of the ESV or something like that where the words are changed slightly. But no, the words are not changed from one edition to another. I just misread it intentionally. It's in verse 2 I misread. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Whereas I just read, proclaiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And if you didn't notice me misread it, because you're gracious, kind, generous people, um, it may be because you don't understand what it means in Jesus, the resurrection. You understand that Jesus rose from the dead, so you understand it if I read it, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But you don't understand what in Jesus, the resurrection means. That seems a very strange phrase. But that's what they were preaching. Not just Jesus rising from the dead, they were preaching the resurrection from the dead. What is the resurrection? And that brings me to eschatology. Because it's what it's all about, is the resurrection. For many of us who've done formal theological education or who've read a systematic theology book, eschatology is the last topic in the course. It's the kind of add-on in systematic theology um, where they put all the other topics that they haven't covered, um, especially about the end of the world, so there'll be some like hell and heaven and the return of the Lord, but there'll be other miscellaneous topics like angels and spiritual beings and... Uh, it's the kind of, there are some things we don't know where to fit, so we'll call them eschatology and they'll be on the last end. But this kind of understanding, of course, then they'll have the big fights about millennialism, you know, premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism and the rest. But I would just tell you, eschatology runs all the way through the Bible, from creation to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible is eschatological because the Bible is historical. The Bible is interested in history. That is, history is a Christian or a Judaic Christian concept. You may not think it, and especially in a country which loves its history, like Britain does, uh, you may not realise it, but it's becoming very clear in Australia because as Australia turns away from Christianity, so it turns away from history. Less and less history is now in the curriculums of our schools because history is no longer an important subject for us. The present is everything. We believe in history because we believe God created the world at a certain point and God is going to finish the world in judgment at a certain point and God has supervising the story from A to Z. <laughs> from the beginning to the end. And the whole world is going somewhere. But other religions and other philosophies don't believe that. 
Buddhism believes that the past is an imagination, the future hasn't happened, the present is the only thing that exists. So you don't really need to worry about the past and the present. Mind you, Buddhism is not always consistent. Eastern religions are very muddled and so some Eastern religions and Buddhisms have the doctrine of karma, which says that what's happening to you in the present is the result of what's happened in the past. But there's still a nothingness that you're heading towards. It's not that the world is heading somewhere. You personally may be, but where you are heading is a big cycle. It goes around and round and round. It really doesn't head anywhere until you come to nothingness. That's the end point, if there is one. Uh, uh, the Canaanite religions that the Israelites had to deal with in the Old Testament, they were fertility religions. They were dominated by the circle, the cycle of, of, of the seasons, of the winter and the summer, and the, the, the dying off and the rising up, which I may say you're still dominated by in this country in nearly all the seasonal activities that you do. Easter is about the bunny and the rabbit and the new life that is coming uh, as uh, uh, your sense of, of uh, what you're doing. It's a very dominating thing, your, the, the culture and your seasons. Uh, li liberated of it by Sydney because we don't basically have the kind of seasonal differences that you have. Our trees are evergreen and you know, I was 38 when I came to England and saw my first um, frost. Um, uh, that's because I live out on the, the eastern edge of Sydney. I mean, there are other people who will see frosts in Sydney, but not, not where I live. Uh, and so the concept of the big change that you see, that, well, eastern Mediterranean, uh, western uh, shore of the eastern coast of Mediterranean, there's big seasonal differences and they're very conscious of it, harvest time. Uh, I'm a city dweller, harvest time means nothing to me because I eat out of tins. Um, so it, it doesn't, doesn't, there's no kind of sense and in our world we have fresh fruit, so-called, from any season. You don't have to worry about, well this is not the time, season for oranges because we fly them in from California. And so we have them all year round rather than have them during particular season. We've lost that seasonal sense. But the ancient world has it very clearly. Subsistence farmers have it very clearly. And so the, the Canaanite religions were fertility religions. You, you went to, the, you went to the, uh, the, the temples and there you practice often uh, very degenerate sexuality in order to get the gods to practice the sexuality in order to provide the new crops for you and the, the harvest time and the, the sowing time and all that kind of thing. But it was all about the magic of the moment. It had nothing to do with where have we come from, where are we going to. It was about manipulating the gods today. Uh, a, a lot of charismatic theology is like that, right? Uh, prosperity gospel is like that. The cargo cult gospels are like that. It's how to get the gods to give me health, wealth, prosperity, justice, now. I, I don't wait. I'm not looking forward. I want now. Instant. Very, very much modern in its concept, this instant gratification. Whereas the Bible is about God making promises and for us waiting for him to fulfill his promises. And the word faith means just that. It's taking God at his word.
He's made a promise, and I trust him. Because I trust him, I trust his promise. I don't have it yet, but I trust him, and I trust his promise, and I know what I'm going to get, because he promised me that I would get it, and he keeps his promises. And so we have a, we're not instant gratification people. We, we, we wait for the gratification that will come on the basis of the promises that he's made. And so that sense of history, that sense of looking for the end, waiting for the fulfilment, is written all the way through the Bible. Genesis 1 to 3 is a wonderful little three chapters which could be everything there is about the world. We don't need the rest of the Bible. Except for verse 15 of chapter 3. Or 16. I can't remember which of it is. I always get those two confused. That is, God creates everything. He makes man in charge of the garden, gives him a wife, tells them to look after everything, tells them they can have everything that's there, provided they don't eat of this tree. And then they eat of this tree, and so God kicks them out of the garden, tells them from here on in it's going to be hard. End of the story. It explains who we are, where we've come from, why life is hard the way it is, why we don't get on with our wife and she doesn't get on with us. It, explain, it, it explains humanity. Everything that you need to know is there. Except this little verse which says that he will strike your seed's foot and your seed will, will crush his head. Except for the promise that there's going to come the son of the woman. There's no more to the storyline. The storyline's finished. But that little verse says, no, it's not finished. Something else is going to happen. Which is why chapter 4, verse 1 says, Adam knew his wife and she had a son and she praises God because here is the seed. Now we've got the bloke who's going to crush the serpent. But of course he doesn't. He crushes his brother instead. Right? Uh, never trust an older brother. That's my view as a younger brother. Never trust an older brother. He, he knocks off his older brother. And so you think, oh, well, it must be the other brother, but it's not the other brother. And then you wade through looking at the next few chapters full of those genealogies. Why are the genealogies there? Well, because you're told a son is coming who will conquer. And you think, ah, oh, Noah. And then as soon as he kind of comes out, what's he do? He gets drunk and lies around naked. And then, and so you're still looking. And it's Abraham, but then Abraham doesn't have a son, so you're still looking. And so he adopts in us. You're looking for... That, that little verse governs the storyline of the Bible as we now are looking for the woman, the woman's son, who's going to bring this, this new world order somehow. That is, God foretells what is going to happen and God fulfills what is going to happen. We're still going to get to Acts 2, but just turn back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have the certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Here's an introduction to the, his, the, the, the writing of history. 
the history of what happened. I'm going to write it down for you, orderly, you know, well organised. Many people have written about it, but I'm, I'm gathering up everything to give you the proper order of how things have all happened. But that is how it starts off. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And the word accomplished there is the word fulfilled amongst us. Accomplished, the translation misses the, 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 the connotation of what is being spoken of here. God promised these things would happen, and now it's not just these things have happened, these things have been fulfilled. The promises have been fulfilled. That is the Christian understanding of history that God is fulfilling his promises. He's doing what he promised to do. And this sense of fulfilment uh, runs through the events of Jesus. Um, the first reference we have to Jesus, if you take Mark as the oldest gospel, which is a, a common view, Jesus appears in Jerusalem, in Galilee, and he preaches the gospel. What does he say? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. He doesn't just say, it's time. It's more than that. It's the time that has been promised in the past that is now happening. It's fulfilled. The promises have been fulfilled. This is the moment for the kingdom of heaven. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, we read Hebrews together a little while ago. Turn across to Hebrews again and look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he has created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. See, in the past God spoke bit by bit, piece by piece, one prophet after another. But now... Now has come the fulfilment of all that has been said. Now he has spoken to us finally by his son. Something has changed. The, this, the piecemeal information you have received in the past by different prophets is now come to an end because the full revelation of God by his son has arrived. He's the, the, the radiance of the radiator. Uh, he's the, the, the very image of the invisible God. He, is the, he has the exact imprint of God. You actually see God in his fullness when you meet this one. And so whereas the prophets gave you snippets of information, now something has happened. And so you see in verse 2, now in these last days. It's not just lately. It's the last days. This is the end. Eschatology is the study of the end. But the end starts with Jesus. There was a long period of time when you heard snippets. But the end has now come. Which is why you don't have a prophet like that come again. Because the fullness of the revelation has arrived. And the great heresies... 
people like uh, the Mormons, Joseph Smith is the great her is the great prophet. Islam, Muhammad is the great prophet, because there is some more information that is needed than Jesus. No, if Jesus is whom Hebrews is telling us, there is no more information. You've, you've now got the full revelation. You had it in part, you've now got the fullness because he has come and fulfilled all the promises. One last uh, other cross-reference. Well, no, it's not going to be the last one. I'm doing a bit of Bible flipping. Go to 1 Peter, which is just close to Hebrews there. 1 Peter chapter 1. Had a wonderful Sunday school education, but they never got my brain right about whether 1 John and 1 Peter comes first or second. It's just one of those little <coughs> cogs missing in the brain. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. <coughs> See, the prophets spoke all down these years, but the prophets didn't know what they were talking about. Because they weren't talking for themselves, they were talking for us. It was when the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, was in them, he was telling them of the sufferings and the glories of the Christ, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't know what it meant. It was all hidden from them. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came and sent his spirit to preach the gospel, then it was made clear what was it all about from the beginning. That's an interesting thing. So even the angels didn't know what it was about. But it's come to us at the end of times. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. A passage where Paul is warning them not to follow uh, idolatry and he reminds them of uh, the Exodus and how God was not pleased with that generation. Verse 6, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters, as some of them, as it was written, they, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We mustn't indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We mustn't put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We are the people of the end of the ages. We are in the last age. The last age has now come. And those things that happened to the people of Israel out in the wilderness under Moses, they happened to them, but they were an example for us. And they were written down, not for themselves, they were written down for us. The Old Testament is a Christian book, not a Jewish book. Very important thing to understand. We've got one Bible 
Two Testaments, but one Bible. The message of old was written for us. The prophets didn't know what they were talking about when they were talking about the sufferings and the glories, but the Gospel makes it clear for those who live in the end of the ages, and that's us. And so it was all written for us upon whom the end of the ages come. So something terrifically has broken the line of history. There's, there's a, a disjunction between the old and the new. There's a discontinuity between the old and the new. We were in a long historical track until Jesus came and now something different has happened. It's not just a continuation. It is a continuation because it's still about the spirit of the Christ. It's still about uh, the sufferings and the glories. There is a continuity about it, but there's also a discontinuity about it because now fulfilment of what was promised has happened. Now the end of the ages has come. Now the last days has arrived. We are now in this different age. And this is the age of the resurrection. For Jesus' resurrection is the critical shift which ushers in the new age. You need to understand, to understand what Jesus does by rising from the dead, you need to understand what the Old Testament teaches about resurrection. The two great passages are Daniel 12 and Ezekiel 37. The Ezekiel 37 one is the one you most likely will know, so I'll just refer to it. We won't read it, otherwise we'll never get to Acts 2. But in Ezekiel 37, it's the Valley of the Dry Bones, where Ezekiel is told by the God to go and speak to the Valley of Dry Bones. And he looks and the whole nation is dead and destroyed. And he says, prophesy to them. So as he preaches the word of God, the Spirit of God enters into the dry bones and they start to form again as humans. And they gather flesh and they rise up and they live. And so they're brought to life. The whole of the people are brought to life. And at that point in the second half of Ezekiel 37, God's kingdom is established and God's king, David, comes to rule over the resurrected people. This, this strange prophecy in Ezekiel 37, it just sits there, tightly connected to Ezekiel 36, which is, I think, one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, is Ezekiel 36. I think the whole Lord's Prayer can be found in Ezekiel 36. It's, it's you know, we pray, hallowed be your name. Why do we pray, hallowed be your name, other than Jesus told us to? But what does it mean? It's Ezekiel 36. God says, I'm not going to rescue you because you need rescuing. I'm going to rescue you so as to hallow my name. And so then Jesus says, well, we need to pray. Hello, your name. Because make holy, make it respected. People hate the name of Jesus. They use him as a swear word. That's not going to happen anymore in the age of the kingdom of God because God's going to protect his name. So that's what we're asking. So Ezekiel 36 then comes into the resurrection and the coming of the kingdom and David in Ezekiel 37. Really important part of the Bible to be reading. But that's what is meant by the resurrection. That's why... In Jesus, chapter 4 of Acts, I've at least reached Acts, but don't worry, I've got somewhere else to go first. In Jesus, the resurrection happens. It's not just Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus rising from the dead commences Ezekiel 37 and the resurrection. Because the last days are seen as the time of the resurrection. Jesus in John chapter 5 speaks about the fact that all will rise. Some will rise to judgment, some will rise to life. 
This resurrection is going to happen. And in Jesus rising from the dead, it's open season. It started. It's commenced in Jesus' resurrection. Come with me to John chapter 11. Lazarus is sick. Lazarus dies. Jesus doesn't turn up in time to protect him. We know that he's going to bring him back from the tomb. Right? I mean, we know... Uh, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept because as a little boy you had to learn a Bible verse every week and so I often learned Jesus wept, you know, when desperate with the Sunday school teacher, especially a new one. John 11.35, Jesus wept. Oh gee, I've learned a verse this week. And then also the favourite verse from the King James Version for little boys, uh, Lord, he stinketh. Uh, you lose that in the modern English translations. They don't have verses like that that are worth learning. It's like in James, it talks about the superfluity of naughtiness. That's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? It's not there in the modern translations. Uh, anyway, so Jesus turns up and Martha rebukes him. So... Verse 24, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Can't you hear a woman saying that to you? But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now notice Martha's answer to that. She said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, rising again means going to heaven. That's what it meant to the Jew. Uh, how do you describe what's going to happen at the end of the world? Well, we're going to rise from the dead. There'll be a resurrection. So when you talk about resurrection, you're talking about the end of the world. So my, my brother will, you know, you could do anything. Jesus says, he'll rise again. She says, I know he's going to heaven. I know he's going to rise again at the end. He's a good godly man. Of course he's going to rise from the dead. But you're not answering my problem. Remember repeatedly how Jesus says to the disciples, he began to teach them, it says in Mark 8, how the Son of Man will suffer and die, he'll be beaten up, he'll be rejected, he'll be rejected by the high priest, the chief priest and the rest of it, and he'll be crucified and die, and on the third day rise again. And you notice the disciples never pick up what that means. They never say, oh, so you're going away for a long weekend. You know, and on the third day you're going to come back. They never pick it up. Because as Jews of the first century, when Jesus said, and on the third day he'll rise again, that means I'll go to heaven in the end. Because <laughs> that's the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is the end of the world, when the righteous will go with heaven. Um, it's in uh, Luke, I think it's Luke 14, 14. Uh, keep your finger in John, we're coming back to him. Luke 14, 14. What's that say? Have I got it right? Um, yes, so about the banquet. Um, verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. <laughs> At the end of the world, in the judgment time, when the, the world, when the resurrection happens, you'll get your reward for what you've done. So that's their thinking. They, it hadn't crossed Martha's line, mind that Lazarus was going to be taken out of the grave, but it hadn't crossed her mind that Jesus was really saying at this point what he goes on to say. 
Jesus said to your brother will rise again. Verse 23, John 11. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. It's a weird phrase, isn't it? He's saying, the end of the world has come in me. The judgment day has come in me. I am the bringing of the new age and the kingdom of heaven. I am the king that is coming on the last day. I am the end of the world. I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me and shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Very important little interchange just to show the, the shift that is happening. That is, they know and believe there's going to be an end of the world called the resurrection. Jesus knows and believes it too. It's just that Jesus believes he is the resurrection. He is the end of the world. Now, why don't we look at Acts 2? This is the longest introduction to a Bible exposition that you've ever had. To understand Acts 2, you need to look at Acts 1. <laughs> For there in Acts 1 verses 4 and 5, they're promised the baptism of the Spirit. Joel 36, uh, Joel, uh, Ezekiel 36 promises that too. John the Baptist promised that there'll be a baptism of the Spirit. And Jesus on his last night speaks of this regard too, the Holy Spirit's coming. But it's not to restore Israel in the way they wanted, verses 6 to 8. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're still thinking that Ezekiel 37 is about getting rid of the Romans. It's about establishing the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom to Israel. He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. The Father is fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the land. It's not the time, and you don't need to know about that time, but when you receive the Holy Spirit, you also, it's the second thing, are going to be the witnesses. The witnesses throughout the land. The word witness, by the way, means to testify to the truth in the face of opposition. It's always in the face of opposition. You never call a witness when everybody agrees. Uh, you don't need to. It's a waste of the court's time to call a witness when everybody agrees on the, on the facts of the case. It's when people challenge a fact that you need to call in the witness. So the witness is always telling the truth in the face of opposition. Indeed, that is why the, the Greek word wound up, uh, marturian, wound up as our English word martyr. <laughs> because they are the people who speak the truth and get persecuted for it. Uh, the, the development of that word over the centuries has a certain logic to it. And so these are the ones who are going to witness to the truth when the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon the whole nation, but you're going to be the witnesses to the nation. And so, chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, actually it's when it was fulfilled, <laughs> is again the Greek word that lies behind it there. There's a sense of the arrival was a fulfilment of everything that you expected. They're all together in one place and suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon them in verses 1 to 4. And there are things that they can observe about the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you could miss. Wind, tongues of fire, 
speaking in other languages, other tongues, um, that there is an interpretation given to us in this passage. It comes from heaven and they are filled with the Holy Spirit and do something. All the way through the uh, book of Acts and the Old Testament, when anyone is ever filled by the Holy Spirit, they always do something. So it's always filled with the Holy Spirit and. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up and. And Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. They always do something when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Being full of the Holy Spirit is a character. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is an enabling. Slightly different sense of the words that are used here. And so verse 4, filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other languages, in other tongues. The word tongues means languages here, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so verses 5 to 13 then describe the events that took place. The Jewish men from every nation were there for the great feast. And so they spoke to them. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now this, the sound of the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? I don't know how to translate that into English. Uh, uh, We would say something like, aren't all these blokes from central Queensland? Uh, Or possibly we'd say, aren't all these blokes from Tasmania? Um, There are certain... What, what's here? Norfolk? Is that, the, is that where they come from? You know, it's, it's where the kind of... Uh, aren't all these Cornish men? You know, I mean, it's, it's the kind of place... It's the backwards. It's the... It's, you don't expect education. You don't expect them to even speak Hebrew properly, let alone... Well, they didn't. They spoke Aramaic badly. And, and they had an accent. You could pick a Galilean by his accent. And the idea that he's now speaking in French and High German and, you know, and Chinese, I mean, this is... Where'd they get this from? In Galilee, right? It's a real put down. What is the, where is the place? Is it Norfolk? Is it Cornwall? Nobody's going to say in case we come from there. Ah, I see, yes. Uh, thank you, good. <coughs> well, we, we say Tasmania, you know, because only a little group of people and it's just very small and there's been a lot of interbreeding. Yeah. <laughs> So the mainlanders say, you know, with the Tasmanian uh, greeting is, give me six. Uh, and so there's, a, there's this sense. We used to run a radio show called, uh, is this person Tasmanian or dead? And you had to choose, you see. <laughs> uh, the trick, of course, was Errol Flynn, uh, the old actor, because he was a Tasmanian who was dead. Uh, so you had a trick question. These are Galileans and they're speaking to all. But what's the big deal? Oh, brother, it's a, it's, brother, it's a huge deal. Why are all these Jews living in the nations? Why aren't they living in Palestine? Why aren't they living in the Promised Land? Why aren't they living in Jerusalem? Why aren't they here? Well, I mean, Galilee was still part of the Promised Land, separated from Judea by Samaria, but it was still part of the Promised Land. But these Charlies, they're coming from, uh, from their Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea. They're coming from all over the Mediterranean world. Why? Why are the Jews there? And the answer is because of the judgment of God. For throughout the Old Testament, you've got two themes operating, gathering and scattering. Gathering is always salvation, scattering is always judgment. 
And so when in say Deuteronomy you're told you're going to go into the promised land, God is going to give you victory, you'll beat everybody, you'll, it's your land, God's land that you're going to be dwelling in. But if you don't keep God's word, you know what will happen to you? You'll be scattered out of the land. You'll, be spare, you'll get famine and, and all this, but also you'll be conquered. But the key element of your conquest is you'll be kicked out of the land. And you'll no longer live as God's people in God's land because you are not God's people. You'll be living all over the world. This is it. So Ezekiel 36, in the resurrection, God is going to draw all the people back to his land. From all the places they've gone, they're going to be drawn back and live as God's people in God's land again. Because God has been made fun of because he can't control his own people in his own land. Because they've been scattered They've been scattered because of the judgment of God upon them. So now he's speaking to the people of the dispersion, they're known, and they are speaking in the languages of all the nations, telling them what? What is he telling them? Verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Most people are so taken up by the miracle of these Galileans being able to speak multiple languages at the same time that they miss out the content of what was being said. But the content of what is being said is what matters. The wonderful works of God to the people under the judgment of God living in foreign lands who are the faithful Jews because they were devout men coming up for the, for the, priest, for the uh, Passover feast. These were the ungodly Jewish men in the dispersion. These were the godly men of the dispersion who are now being told of the wondrous works of God. Salvation has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they're hearing that of the mighty works of God. Some, of course, who are standing by said, no, 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 no. these blokes are just drunk. And Peter answers that and says, no, no, they're not Australians. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Can't possibly be drunk. Third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. So, no, no, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. That's what he says. And what's he say through the prophet Joel? He then quotes, actually misquotes, Joel chapter 2. Because in Joel chapter 2 it says, after these things, but in Peter's rendering of it, he says, in the last days, God declares, this is what's going to happen. All my people are going to become prophets because all my people are going to receive the Spirit of God. Young and old, male and female, they're all going to receive the Spirit of God in the day when the judgment of the world happens. The signs above, the, the, the earth below, the blood, the fire, the vapour, the smoke, the sun shall turn to darkness, the moon to blood. The great judgment of God is going to happen. It didn't happen on the day of Pentecost, did it? Yes, it did happen on the day of Pentecost. Not as you expected, but it did happen. The end of the world started on that day. And the start of the end of the world is the reconstitution of the people of Israel as a spiritual people. They're no longer Israelites because their father and their mother and their great-grandfather were Israelites. They're now Israelites because they've been born again by the Spirit of God. They are the true Israelites now. And this day of resurrection has got underway. And the day of resurrection is the day of judgment. And the day of judgment will mean those who are scattered through the world are going to be condemned. No, 
Because in that day, verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The day of judgment is the day of salvation. How can the day of judgment be the day of salvation? Why is the day of resurrection the day of judgment and salvation? How does that all come together? And what does it mean to the Jews of the dispersion in particular? Well, we've got to have morning tea first.